Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Laura Kipnis, an essayist and author whose books include Against Love, Men, Notes from an Ongoing Investigation. It's a good title. And most recently, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus. Although known for her writings about feminism and gender, Kipnis became the target of a Title IX campaign launched by students at Northwestern, where she teaches. After this, she decried what she called sexual paranoia. More recently, she has written a long essay in the New York Review of Books on the wave of sexual misconduct stories that have rocked the worlds of politics, Hollywood, journalism, and much more. Laura Kipnis joins me now from New York City. Laura, thanks for coming on, I have to ask. Thank you so much for asking me. So let me ask you this uh, wave of sexual misconduct stories that are um, that are everywhere. When, when this whole wave started, uh, what did you make of it and how surprised were you by them? Well, I had heard some of this was coming, I guess. You know, rumors circulate. But I think what surprised me was the extent of the misconduct. You know, at first, when the initial stories broke about Harvey Weinstein, and it looked like sort of -of run-of-the-mill sexual harassment, that was one thing. But as the extent of um, the issue emerged, both the numbers and the severity, I mean, the allegations of actual rape, that was a complete surprise. And then, um, you know, as as more and more uh, people started being accused and you started hearing about, um, you know, the vast numbers of, of people that women that were being sub- subjected to such gross stuff. I mean, even I, ooh, I, I think of myself as unshockable, and I have to say I was shocked. So do, has it made you think differently about the way you conceive of male-female dynamics in society or... Um, I mean, I know you've written about society more broadly and also college campuses specifically, but has it made you rethink any of that stuff? I think it's made me go back to some of the feminist theory and also Marxist feminist theory that I came of age reading and thinking in terms of, uh, you know, leftist feminists used to talk about women as the last colony. And I started thinking about the ways in which women still haven't achieved full economic or civic equality if our bodies are going to be public property. You know, it's assumed that we're kind of like open for for grazing, you know, and I started using the, the metaphor of the feudal lord who thinks of uh, you know, the collectivity of women as, as his vassals or his serfs or, you know, his, his own property. So it does seem like, you know, there's this uneven development um, for women where we're a couple of centuries behind the freedoms that men won in the various democratic revolutions. So go into that a little more, though. I mean, wh- what is it about, had you sort of originally thought that, that that brand of Marxist feminist theory was out of date or something, and now you're thinking that it's not as out of date as you thought, or you're looking at it in a new way? Well, partly what made me start thinking of this is a kind of excitement that I felt about this as as a mass movement. I mean, the, the Me Too campaigns, and, you know, despite what I think are some of the conceptual difficulties, like you have all different levels of, you know, conduct and malfeasance and whatever squashed together. I mean, still for activism, I think that that's been really useful. And so it does look like a a mass movement of the kind that, you know, I suppose hasn't been around for women since, um, you know, the ERA or the suffragette movement, um, you know, or maybe some of the, the activism in second wave feminism. So... I, um, you know, that does seem different and exciting to me. And to start thinking about women as a class, 
kind of rejecting the previous terms of the agreement and demanding various new rights, like the right to, you know, not be groped. Um, so it did start seeming like something other than the usual kind of jostling uh, between men and women over um, inequalities and something more like a, a, a movement. Well, let me ask you, because you mentioned the the Marxist theory that you mentioned and the idea of colonization. In your piece in the New York Review of Books, which I mentioned in the intro, um, you uh, – you, you have this quote, which I'll just read to our audience, um, and you can respond to it. If we're demanding that men overcome their gender socialization, are there aspects of femininity we might wish to ditch too? Cowering when a man mentions sex transforms it into the equivalent of the master stick. He merely has to wave it to keep you in line. It's the internalized submission of a colonial mentality. And in fact, left-wing feminists, a dying breed in these lean-in times, used to propose regarding women as, quote, the last colony, including those of us residing in the advanced metropolis. Perhaps if women unlearned this response, we'd fare better, just in case men don't cease weaving their sticks immediately, end quote. So um, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that some people might read that as sort of saying, you know, um, women are not, if not to blame, that, that women have some role in mitigating this problem. Um, I do think women have a role in, in mitigating it. So I wrote a book, um, I don't know, 10 or so years ago called The Female Thing. And the subtitle was Dirt, Sex, Envy, Vulnerability. And it was my attempt to grapple with some of these issues. I mean, I think I call it a colonized mentality in the New York Review piece. But the ways in which there are these aspects of femininity um, that we're subject to due to, you know, conventional socialization as, as women that I do think impede us in achieving equality. Um, and the, you know, tendency towards submissiveness or toward um, over, over feeling vulnerable, I think are, are ways in which um, I think we are kind of kept subjugated. And I do think that men, particularly the sort of, you know, men lobbying for advantage or the predator class do play on that. I mean, you see that um, entirely in the Harvey Weinstein allegations where, you know, he was in some cases using physical force, which I don't think is something, you know, it's that easy to contest. But a lot of the time, he was riding this aura of power and manipulating women into doing what he wanted or playing along with him due to the ways in which, you know, we're socialized to be polite, we're socialized to not make a fuss, to feel like it's um, well, our job to, uh, you know, I don't know, take care of the world or whatever. And, you know, some women resisted that, but I think a lot of women ended up doing stuff they didn't want to do because they were embarrassed or were... Um, you know, fearful of making a scene sort of thing. Well, I guess I, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a tricky line, right? I, I was talking to a friend about this subject and she said what I thought was really smart was that, you know, it, she understands why African-Americans might tell their kids to, you know, behave a certain way around police because they may in fact be at risk from police. And so she, she gets that on a micro level of why that's advice that people give to their children, but as a response to a social problem, i.e. saying uh, the response to the problem of, you know, the criminal justice system being unfair is to tell black people to tell their kids to, uh, you know, 
act a certain way, that's very lacking as a as a social response to a to a widespread problem. Do you, th- that seems to apply here, at least to me, a little bit. Well, that's why I think we do have to be capable of making smart distinctions. So the difference between state power uh, or a cop with a gun and male power, you know, those are different things. And, you know, there's also a difference that I tried to talk about in the piece between force and power. So a man manipulating a woman into submission is a different situation, and one would deal, want to deal with it differently than somebody trying to physically force someone into submission. And, you know, I, I talked about this in an Unwanted advan- Advances, my last book, um, the fact that I, you know, in my 20s took a self-defense class or a couple of self-defense classes. And, you know, we were taught that fighting back physically actually was the best response to physical assault. And I really do recommend um, that that all women do this because, I mean, collective action is fine and lobbying for social change is fine, but we also do confront these sorts of situations as individuals. And I think the more confidence and the more um, you know, even like willingness to to try to fight someone physically if you have to is is not a bad thing for women. And I think it also helps kind of mitigate the the socialization toward submissiveness that I also do think, you know, as we saw in a lot of the reporting about these um, sexual harassment cases, a lot of these men played on women's um, submissiveness. You tell you tell a story. Your your piece in the New York Review of Books is ostensibly a review of Gretchen Carlson's Oops. memoir. <laughs> Thank and, you for the ostensibly. <laughs> well, no, I mean it. Uh, I know how this it works. It seemed like it was a good ex- point. Yeah. That, thank you. Thank you. Um, you tell the story in the in the piece, which is from her book, um, where basically she's in a car with some guy that she works with, not who's above her on the food chain, but some guy she works with who uh, gives this entire graphic monologue to her. And, you know, you say that she sort of felt she says that she felt sort of sheer terror about this and, you know, was hoping she wouldn't have to jump out of the vehicle. And you kind of you kind of say, like, you know. Come on, like this guy wasn't above her. He was almost very likely not going to cause her physical harm. She should have just told him essentially to to shut up. Well, I hope I didn't uh, write it in quite such a finger wagging way as you're as you're describing it. I mean, but I was actually really asking the question: What stopped her from telling him to shut up? He wasn't physically oh. threatening her, and she describes herself as cowering in terror and wondering if she was going to have to jump out of. The car. And, you know, it is really the case that in conventional femininity, a sort of fearfulness about sexual matters is, you know, is is part of the deal. Um, And I do think that's something that we could all try to unlearn, um, particularly those of us women who are the most afflicted by it. I mean, if we're asking men to unlearn elements of male socialization. The question I ask is, are there elements of female socialization that we also might want to ditch and that impede us in, you know, uh, the the workplace or in, you know, moving comfortably through the social world? I think that, uh, I mean, I think the answer to your question about why she didn't just tell him to shut up is that it's just really hard for people to do that. And not just around gender issues, but just um, that sort of confrontational attitude, which I 
I personally think is probably helpful in a lot of social situations if people could just be more upfront and firm. It's just really hard for a lot of people. Well, it's more um, hard for women. I mean, don't you think? I, I mean, is that... Um, well, I, I probably can't speak to that, but that intuitively makes a certain amount of sense given the society we live in, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's. I think that these guys play on that. I mean, that's the issue. These guys were manipulators. They took advantage of women. Um, I mean, I'm not excusing anything, but I'm kind of a pragmatist. And, you know, you can, like, in theory, say they shouldn't do this. And, you know, there's a lot of, I, I think, questions to be answered about why they do do it. And, you know, um, I think there's a lot we don't understand about that kind of behavior. But still, in the meantime, up until, you know, the point that all men on the planet get the message to stop harassing women or stop stop treating our bodies like property, you know, we are going to be faced with these situations. It's interesting that you said, um, you said female socialization, and then you referred to male socialization, because there, one of the conversations going on about this has been not so much that, um, you know, men are socialized to behave in this way, but that men are like genetically, uh, programmed or whatever the word is to behave in this way. And that, you know, it's sort of men's uh, fundamental nature um, to be like this. What, what have you kind of made of that, that aspect of, of the debate? I think it's an incredibly unhelpful discussion. Um, and I think it's always inherently conservative to refer to, you know, some sort of ingrained or inborn gender traits. Um, you know, I always use the example of toilet training. Look, you know, we we don't like take a crap in the front yard. We're all, you know, we all could have that instinct. I mean, that's a natural instinct, but we're toilet trained, which is like we're sort of the bottom line of socialization. And so our instincts are socially modified. So to start, you know, I think the resort to these sociobiological explanations is always when people are trying to um, and still, like, the most conservative version of, of gender relations. It's okay to say take a crap, right? Uh, you can say whatever you want. Although <laughs> okay. that, that, was, that was not the example I would have gone with, but uh, it's okay. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's often used um, as an excuse. And I also, I mean, there was, a, there was an essay a couple of days ago in the New York Times by someone named Stephen March, kind of about mm -hmm. how men were this way. And... Um, I, I think it it probably understates the degree to which that society can mold people's behavior, um, which, again, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk that, well, look at all this. This has been going on in these different worlds. It's been going on in liberal universes and conservative universes and among men who consider themselves woke and among men who are reactionary Neanderthals like Roy Moore. And so it's kind of everywhere. And um, I think that that's a really helpful realization to think that people with all different ideological views can behave this way. But I also think um, it probably understates the degree to which um, we can at least mitigate things by teaching people to think and behave in a certain way, which is what society molds people to do in all sorts of things. You know, I think Stephen Marsh is a good novelist and bad uh, thinker on these issues. And I actually posted on Facebook that this is like we're now officially back in the 19th century. 
after I read that piece of his. And I quoted um, something from around the 1850s, which was almost identical to his description of predatory male sexuality and the, um, you know, the, the, the fear, the fear of, of, of men. And the upshot of that kind of argument is always that it's women's jobs because of our more gentle nature, you know, because we're uh, sort of these better moral creatures, it's our job to socialize or to, to you know, reform these instincts of, of men. And that's what the discussion was in the 19th century. And I sort of think it's some of the undertone of the discussion now that veers in the direction that his, that his piece took. So I just, I think this is, you know, if you read the history of these arguments, you'll see that that one keeps cropping up and then you'll see the kind of inherent, I mean, you'll see how bad it is for women because then it casts women in a certain role in relation to these men. You published a book this year, which uh, about called unwanted advances, uh, sexual paranoia comes to campus. And you're, you're, you're obviously talking about things on college campuses, which is something that has garnered a lot of press lately about the state of our college campuses. And you have your own particular story having to do with a Title IX campaign launched by students at Northwestern against you. Um, and I should say you you uh, you teach at Northwestern. Um, but I, I'm wondering what this wave of stories has made you think about what's going on on college campuses and if you think it casts it in a in a different light at all. I know I asked you a version of this earlier, but specifically about college campuses. I've been thinking about this uh, too, because but I think that they're very different contexts. And I really do think, you know, the journalists kind of rush to collapse everything together, pundits collapse everything together. And I do think it's a moment for making distinctions. And and one of the distinctions I would make, and I, I wrote about this in Unwanted Advances, is, you know, the effect that Title IX has had uh, on campus and the way that there's this whole sort of level of the administration that are that's set up to encourage um, accusation making. And I mean, what, what what's, these situations have in common is that we're having these discussions about consent and what is and isn't consensual. In the cases that have come up in the non-campus context, I mean, Weinstein, Roger Ailes, Charlie Rose, you know, all of these different figures, we're talking about behavior that's clearly not consensual. And so what's getting reported is, you know, women are on the receiving end of these non-consensual sexual, you know, from everything from you know, commentary to groping to, you know, sexual assault. That's just not consensual. On campus, it's a different situation because there's an, what I wrote about was the ways in which you have a lot of situations where because of the Title IX apparatus, consent is being renegotiated after the fact. Like things people consented to are being reconceptualized as as not consenting, or you have situations of drunken sex between equals, you know, like undergrads, where somebody then later changes, usually it's a woman, her mind about whether that was consensual. And I, my point there was that this was overall, I think, very bad for women, because um, women feminists fought for a long time to give women sexual agency and, you know, erotic control over our bodies. And now administrators um, are kind of backpedaling on that with 
the consent of student activists who are kind of joining forces with, say, like Title IX officers to say, oh, no, that woman really didn't know what she was doing at that moment. And so these are different situations. What have you made of the Trump administration's moves in the direction of changing the way Title IX is applied on campuses? Well, you know, it pains me incredibly to say that anything uh, on the part of the Trump administration is good. And But I think if, you know, it took somebody like Betsy DeVos, and, I, you know, I don't want to be ad hominem and start calling her an idiot, but, you know, <clears throat> if it took a Betsy DeVos to dial back the incredible excesses of, of the Obama administration, that just shows how far gone the situation was. So yeah, I, you know, have, it's, it's uncomfortable, but I do think that inserting requirements for due process, you know, at a very minimum in these Title IX procedures uh, is, is just simply necessary. Do you think that there's, um, uh, if, 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 if it is going to be scaled back and there will be more opportunities for due process for people who are accused of these things, um, is is there sort of some middle ground that you think can effectively combat the amount of sexual misconduct that we see on college campuses? And I mean, I'm everywhere, but college campuses is a, is a place where, you know, there's there's a administration that wants to try and sort of take control of it and as well it should. Um, is is there some sense you have of, of the way to solve this problem? Well, I say, to begin with education, I think we're doing a terrible job of educating students, and that includes women students, um, about the realities of, you know, sexual life as a, as a young adult. And, you know, the context of a lot of this is, is hookup culture and the confusions of that and binge drinking and the effects of that. And I think that instead of slogans about rape culture, you've got to have really honest discussions about what's going on, you know, on the weekends, uh, in private, and what people want from these kinds of sexual encounters, and what they don't want. Um, because I, I really do think that, and I said this in Unwanted Advances, the thing that really surprised me in talking to a lot of my own students, I think that women in particular actually don't know how to handle themselves, including how to say no um, in in situations where they could. And so most of the situations do not have to do with physical force. I mean, nobody's holding someone down. I mean, people are getting blotto drunk and not knowing what they're, they're doing uh, and doing stuff they wish that they hadn't done. But a lot of it has to do with bad communication, bad education, um, you know, and and sort of, I kind of think, you know, dumb thinking about sex that, you know, to some degree, I think the educators are responsible because we're just not realistically educating students about sexuality. The case you wrote about in uh, Unwanted Advances, the main case that you wrote about, there was a, a, a lawsuit filed against you and your publisher, Harper Collins. Uh, are you allowed to talk about that at all? No, I'm not, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> so I, um, I'm gagged. I'm gagged on all uh, sides. So l- let me ask you just um, a final question before we go, which is um, I've been wondering as someone who's been writing about women's roles in society for a very long time, what you have made of the the reappraisal of Bill Clinton by a bunch of um, 
people on the left in regards to his own um, cases of sexual misconduct that he was accused of in terms of sexual harassment, in one case, even rape, and then the Monica Lewinsky scandal where there was obviously inappropriate workplace behavior. I was wondering um, what you've made of that and, and how you look back on the way feminists in the late 90s responded to the accusations. Well, those are a whole bunch of different things. Um, you know, I think the, I mean, like the, to start out with the, the Monica situation, I mean, you know, Monica always said that her involvement was completely voluntary. I think she says she made the first move. And I think the um, codes about, you know, there shouldn't be any sort of workplace involvement probably came later. So, you know, making some distinctions there, I, th I think is is useful. You know, she was victimized less by Clinton or not by Clinton, but by Kenneth Starr and, you know, the his team. I mean, in terms of the other accusations, I have difficulty with this because, you know, I did research into this because I've written about it. And, you know, the amount of money that people like Richard Scaife poured into uh, digging up dirt or creating accusations against Clinton, you know, uh, in order to do exactly what they accomplished, which was create a perjury trap, you know, by digging up Paula Jones and these other accusations. It was so politicized from the beginning. I mean, the thing that is interesting about this is whether Gloria Alrad is going to go forward um, and try to hang Trump on the same sort of, uh, with the same sort of tactics, you know, create a perjury uh, trap for him, you know, because the Supreme Court allowed that case against Clinton to, to go forward. So, you know, that would be an interesting outcome of all of this. But, you know, as far as the other accusations, it was always so politicized. And, you know, to the point that his accusers are now touring or did tour during the campaign with with Trump, um, what, what am I supposed to make of that as an observer? If they were um, sexual assault survivors, why are they throwing their lot in with Donald Trump? Well, I mean, it I, did I, one answer would, about how politicized the thing was. Right. I mean, one answer would be that they're hypocritical and, you know, uh, not consistent the way all of us are. Right. And that people, people, especially when it comes to politics, people have double standards and they do as well. And that shouldn't necessarily impact how we feel about the accusations they made. Well, that's the part I'm not sure about. I, you know, I can't really go along with the believe all accusers line, partly because having investigated Title IX accusations, I see, I have seen um, how specious a lot of these accusations are. Um, people have a lot of motives for accusing other people of stuff. I mean, particularly on campuses where there really are not any particular um onuses on on making an accusation or or repercussions and you know i um have seen cases and i've seen the documents where you know people in the midst of breakups or for whatever reasons accuse other people of stuff that actually just didn't happen i mean there's just an incredible amount of documentation on this and i know that's not a popular line among my fellow feminists but you know it's it's documented it's actually, I mean, it's um, just to bring the conversation full circle. A, uh, of course, there are 
false accusations as there are with everything. But it's been surprising to me in a lot of these big media cases how um, how few people have kind of vehemently denied it. Um, uh, except for even Trump. The one, right. Except for Trump. But um, well, he sort of I mean, he sort of denied it. He yeah, I guess he said it was it was locker room talk. Um, but it's uh, it, Almost everyone else in almost every field has either completely apologized or given kind of a half apology, which we've seen from Weinstein and Al Franken and different people. But there have been very few people who've sort of set up and said, stood up and said, I was wrongly accused. This is outrageous. My name is being smeared. Anyway, it's just just interesting. Yeah, I mean, but like I said, I do think that you can't extrapolate from that to the campus situation because uh yeah they're they're just different contexts and the the mechanics of the you know accusation procedure are very different Laura Kipnis thank you so much for joining us today uh your most recent book which is out in bookstores or i guess do people go to bookstores anymore which is available on websites like Amazon and everywhere else is called Unwanted Advances Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus and your new piece in the New York Review of Books i don't know why i'm telling you all this but to the audience is out this week um so thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks so much and that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon, with help today from Sarah Burningham. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. One more thing. If you want to stay up to date on tech news that matters, check out If Then, a podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Aramis talk to key tech figures, academics, and journalists about how the technology that's shaping our world actually works and dig into the ideologies and biases that underlie it. And guess what? They don't always agree. Subscribe to If Then wherever you get your podcasts.